This week on The Futurist, Nicholas Badbitten. The idea that suddenly it's like plug and play, uh, let's go, um, almost like Matrix vibes is, I think it's the wrong path for humanity. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm your co-hostess with the mostess, Katie King, and in the hosting seat today is the one and only Brett King. Welcome back, yep. Brett. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely the hostess with the mostest. So, uh, right? yeah, it's, it's good to be back. Um, I am struggling a bit today. So for the listeners, um, I'm glad I've got Katie uh, with me today because I uh, got a bit of the dreaded lurg or the man flu from all my uh, travels. But um, this is great. You know, um, we've got uh, a uh, industry leading futurist on the show today. So it's going to be lots of fun. Um, Nick, welcome to the futurists. Thank you so much. It's uh, fantastic to uh, to be here, and we were we were in person a couple of weeks ago in Toronto as well. So uh, you know, twice in a couple of weeks, I, I feel blessed. Fortuitous, as as they would yeah, say, for right? Sure. So, and you're based in Toronto. Yeah, I'm I'm a Brit. I've uh, been in Canada since 2008. I used to be in Vancouver. Now I'm now I'm based in Toronto, which is one of the greatest cities in the world. Uh, absolutely. Well, yeah, well great they to have certainly you. have good Thai food. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what? Thai food in Toronto is killer. Uh, ca- Caribbean food as well, Jamaican food especially, you know? Ah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was so great meeting up with you in person. And uh, we got our copy of your new book, Facing Our Futures. We yeah. got a signed copy right here by the one and only Nicholas Badminton. And Amazing. I already started reading it, which is awesome. Yeah, and Amazing. For those of And for those of you that don't know Nick... He is, a, um, of course, a well-known futurist in the space. He runs futurist.com, think tank, and uh, does a ton of speaking in the space, has uh, best-selling books, as you just saw, uh, in the space. So, Nick, we're, we're very happy to have you on the, on the show today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super, it's super great. And, um, you know, for the last sort of 12, 12 or so years, being focused on this futures work has been, uh, has been really, really fun. And, uh, life gets interesting and more interesting on a monthly basis uh, as the world sort of becomes more complicated and more difficult and, uh, more people are trying to find answers about what comes next. Yeah. I saw in your bio, one of the coolest things that you've worked on recently was the Age of AI series. Yeah, which of course had uh, RDJ in it. Did you actually get to speak to him at all throughout that process, or you just advised? Yeah, I didn't chat to Robert Downey Jr., but I, I was working with a, a team up in uh, Vancouver in Canada that was working with Team Downey, and um, they sort of approached me, and I walked into this big room that had eight episodes and all these ideas, and it was very clear. And this was about four, four or so years ago, right, pre-pandemic that um, there was a lot of work to be done in terms of understanding exactly what machine learning, artificial intelligence, or where the boundaries of that were. It's not It's not really well-defined. Uh, what stories could be interesting, what areas, what industries could be interesting as well. So I sort of, I became that consultant and helped them and worked directly with the script writer. And knowing that Robert Downey Jr. was producing it and would be the voice at the end was actually pretty inspirational. They did a really good job. It was, we really wanted to make yeah, it I liked deeply, it. yeah, we want it a deeply human story based um series and i think that that's what's kind of missing today because everyone's just gone like ai nuts you know and they're sort of forgetting that you know it's the human stories and what 
things like technology, artificial intelligence, whatever, actually provides us as as tools to for the betterment of humanity is the important story here, and not necessarily like the whiz bang pop of uh, you know how many users, how many minutes, how much money, and whatever you know whether it's savings or profits and that kind of thing. So uh, so yeah, I still think it as a series it, it stands up like to this day as being something incredibly important to uh, pay attention to. And lots of amazing people are actually featured in it. They didn't interview me, but I was sort of behind the <laughs> scenes, uh, which was a shame, but like, you know, I was sort of behind yeah. the scenes, just really helping shape, you know, the direction of, of that series. So that was a fantastic experience. Well, I, we're thinking of putting together a show uh, based on, you know, the work that we've done on, on this podcast right. and, uh, you know, maybe a conference series or something like that. So we'll yeah. definitely get you on that. For sure. Yeah, well, you know, I saw that the forward of your book was written by the very lovely futurist, uh, Glenn Heemstra, one of yeah. my my favorite old school futurists. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, I, I considered him a, a bit of a mentor uh, to me as well. Uh, you shout know, out what to inspired, Glenn. Yeah, shout out to Glenn. <laughs> uh, but what inspired you to become a futurist? Was there someone that, who was your mentor? Uh, when did you get started? It's kind of interesting, and I, I talk about this in my keynotes. Um, so at the age of eight, my you know we were part of a book club at school, and you sort of you know it was like nineteen seventy nine or so, and in you know I was kind of into tech and whatever, and there was all these amazing programs in the UK like Tomorrow's World and whatever that sort of like really turned people onto future technologies. But as part of the book club, um, my dad bought me this. This. Oh, is nice. the Osborne Buck book of the future. And I actually went out and got this copy. This is 44 years old, wow. this book. Wow. Uh, uh, yeah. So at That's the age awesome. of eight, I was reading books about, obviously there's like space travel, living on the moon, living on Mars, living under the ocean, wearable computing, robots at home. It's got the Hyperloop in it, all sorts of things. Um, and I kind of think that that was like the, that that sort of moment when I really got switched on to futures. And it's not that I was a futurist from the age of eight, but I was I was seeking out these stories about how the world would change. And I was constantly scanning for signals. I wasn't calling it that back then. But I was basically there, like with a wide open mind, you know, watch a ton of sci-fi, see a lot of technology developments. I was programming computers by about the age of 10 or 11. Uh, and, and I sort of dedicated my life into like really looking at technologies and reshaping the world through that. When I went to university uh, around about the age of 20, I actually did a, a course called Applied Psychology and Computing. It was a Bachelor of Science. And I specialized in artificial intelligence and linguistics and organizational change. So that was mid-90s. So from the from the late seventies to the mid nineties, um, sort of that 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 sort of shaping, and then throughout my career, I spent most of it in data and analytics, and there's a bit of machine learning and whatever in there as well. And then uh, back in 2010, 2011, a great friend of mine, uh, Karis O'Connell, who I'm going to see uh, next week in California, moved to vancouver from berlin and i'd not seen him since we were 14 and uh, we were already already amazing friends and we'd sort of reconnected through the magic of facebook and we started putting on small events and then conferences and then started doing amazing things. Kara started developing companies that specialized in augmented reality. I started doing radio and TV. I quit all my work and was just focused 100% on, on doing the futures work. And it's because someone called me a futurist. And at that point, 
<laughs> it kind of seemed like I'd sort of graduated in a way in, in yeah. sort of the mindsets of people that, you know, I could talk about this, I could get into it. And I think, you know, it was, I was very sort of young, raw, ready. Um, I was kind of experimenting with transhumanism and psychedelics and all sorts of crazy stuff back then. And uh, Katie, this is when you and I connected way back in the day. Um, yeah. and, and and we, we you know, I, I started doing a podcast and we did, you were in the first season and we, we spoke about sex robots and gynoids you know yeah. edgy. i'm a little bit more like you know today you know i'm tomorrow I'm, I'm chatting to a company that's got an 850 billion dollar um like investment fund <laughs> it's kind of gone exactly. from specifically for sex robots or for anything? no not sex robots no. <laughs> big infrastructure different stuff. kind of market <laughs> can you imagine though that would be kind of amazing like you know secretly we've got 850 billion dollars worth of sex robot technology anyway <laughs> i uh so so over the years, it's kind of gone from like funky, weird, like counterculture stuff to, you know, funky, weird counterculture stuff under the surface of, you know, buttoned up Nick, you know, advising big governments, big companies and whatever, still maintaining that playful challenge to, you know, what people think, you know, the future might be to open their minds to the possibilities and all of the things that we don't talk about in terms of how difficult mm. it is to go travel from here to like 10, 15, 20 years into the future, right? Yeah. No, I mean, um, that, that process of, uh, you know, I think futurists, like us, you know, we're always keen to get to the future. You know, that's something we all yeah. share. We're in a hurry to get to the future. Um, but, um, you know, as as a futurist, how have you, you know, like after you were called a futurist and, mm. and, you know, as you were getting into this, obviously it sort of happened in terms of just you thinking about how the world's going to adapt and then starting to apply some methodology to it. So when did you sort of start looking at how to, you know, do your own forecasting and, you know, looking at these futures? Was it just about you absorbing as much information as possible and sort of figuring out your way through it? Or was there a more formal methodology? Yeah, it, it was, you know, it was scanning signals, storing signals, constantly discussing. I, I actually had a, a really amazing uh, group of friends in Vancouver that I, I ran events with and whatever, but we'd get together and we'd talk about all of this. Uh, you know, I, I started something called uh, Canada Futurist and I had Vancouver Futurist and we used to do like month, monthly meetups. And, you know, you, you, you do different subjects and just get all these different perspectives. So kind of comes comes from community. And I think that that's still a really important um, part of the whole futures work. I There was an amazing community on Twitter. <laughs> there kind of is on LinkedIn. I've built one on Discord for a group of people as well. But, you know, I still think that community is really important. But it was, it was just gaining pace and talking about it and kind of being obsessed about all of these things over time. And uh, at the beginning of my book, I, the, I sort of talk about this moment I had in Vancouver a few years ago. And I was like basically jobless a hundred percent focused on this future stuff trying to work it out doing a very small projects here and there um and trying to really you know work out what comes next and i remember looking up and i was at this this intersection in downtown vancouver and granville and georgia really famous intersection been in tons of hollywood movies and you looked up and you just suddenly start seeing the world completely differently. You can sort of feel the, you know, the heartbeat of all like the technological systems and infrastructure and people and their own lives and whatever. I sort of like said it was like akin to like um, the Matrix and Neo seeing the falling code for the first time. And I think that that awareness 
it's difficult to unsee it. Once you start walking around in the world and you start looking at what is happening and you can really start to see, you know, the cracks in the system and the light that shines through them, I think that's where we as futurists really start to play an incredibly important part in life because we start to see where the unknowns are, are being answered and and where we're likely to go. Well said. <laughs> You're right. You're right. It is once you see, you cannot unsee. That's right. What is your thought about the current state of futures thinking today? I mean, do you, do you think it's more prevalent? Are more people catching on to uh, scanning the future, becoming, you know, the next generation of futurists? You know what? It, it's really, really cool right now. I mean, there's there's tons of universities uh, that are offering courses, um, whereas you know, even like ten or so years ago, you know, Stellenbosch or Houston or whatever, um, even places like OCAD in Toronto were starting. But now it's really gained a pace. I think the word futurist and futurism is kind of coming to the 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 psyche of so many people in technology world or business world or whatever. Tons of people are willing to call themselves futurists. And I think that that's absolutely amazing. The more, the better. And and so I, I kind of think that that we're in this world where there's amazing academic work. There's really cool corporate uh, foresight work. There's like the counterculture of foresight, um, which has kind of been around, but is now becoming more and more relevant. And and there's this sort of uh, <laughs> co-opting of, of futurist terms and foresight terms by, you know, the technophiles, you know, mm. the people that are trying to build a solution that is absolutely the future future of your world sort of thing you know so i i think we've got this this sort of mix of there's a struggle i think in the futurist community i think academics could sometimes look at someone like, maybe like me and be like oh yeah but you know it's all a bit too flashy and you're not talking about deep theory you know at the board level and it's like you know what I'm never going to put a picture of the futures cone on a slide ever again and try and put it in front of a, a CEO or an executive. Here's seven different flavors of futures. And it's like, come on. So uh, I'm kind of all about cutting to the chase and, and sort of getting into the futures work, even teaching them that the plurality of futures, there's multiple futures. This is about, you know, possibility. This is about this is about thinking about hope as an energy for changing the world this is about you know being open to completely new perspectives and questioning you know what if my business doesn't exist in 35 years because the core core parts of our business are going to no longer be relevant this is this is the work we need to do and from those perspectives they're still really tough conversations but they're there more and more organizations are willing to ask, you know, what if the world changes and what's our place going to be? Sure, they might be motivated by money or cost savings, and that's fine. Or, you know, the betterment of community or or humanity as per governments or academics. But, you know, as long as we're sort of taking a step forward and challenging, you know, the failing industrial complex that we've got around as the constant collapse, then uh, I think it's really important. It's interesting you you identify the fact that more and more people are sort of borrowing from the futurist stuff, um, you know, and to be to be good at the technology stuff, you, you yeah. have to be able to forecast some of this stuff because it moves so quickly now. You That's know, right. you've, you can't you don't have the ten or fifteen years to adjust to technology cycles. It's now three or five years. Look what's about to happen with Vision Pro and Meta smart glasses and, yeah. and stuff like that. But I've had this discussion with people like Mike Walsh, who right. we, we are yet to get on the show, but we will. And you know Mike, I'm sure. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, you know, Mike um, says there's too many people calling themselves futurists now, but you take a, a different approach to that, right? You know, yeah. I mean, we try and do claim back the terminology of, of futurists. You know, that's why we have, you know, we're doing this show and sort of trying to raise the profile of, of the, you know, the top future thinkers. But you also have a brand that's very identifiable with, you know, futurism being mm-hmm. futurist.com. Yeah. So, um, you know, you think that the more the merrier? I don't see why not. I mean, okay, put us three in a row, right? Brett, you know, banking, bank 4.0, 5.0, you know, future of banking very much. Katie, you're, you're like the OG Miss Metaverse. Let's not, yep, let's absolutely. not screw around with all of this, right? But like, you know, sort of really counterculture, really alternative thinking about a bunch of stuff. And I'm yeah. sort of like just myself. I mean, we talk about plurality of futures and then someone says that we can't have like we've got too many futurists it's it's it's, it's it doesn't make sense yeah. <laughs> right yeah, I, agree. I you know what like i, I, I want to build i want I everybody wanna... to think like a futurist right that's because right then, everyone you know yeah because then we'll be able to actually get consensus on stuff that we really should be doing yeah and you know there's a lot of authors out there like scott smith that you should get on the show and whatever that like you know they're writing books to help people do this stuff like i want absolutely everyone to to walk out in the world and suddenly you know that they, they are scanning they are thinking of futures they are asking what if questions whenever i i leave uh the conferences, I, I leave them with a QR code and, and, a, and a URL to go to so they can start the work. Simple stuff like setting up Google alerts for, for signals that, in areas that you're interested in. This is simple stuff. This is this, yeah. just a bit once a day, look at your Gmail, and then suddenly you're, you're primed with a little bit more information. And you can maybe make a slightly better decision or change a strategy or whatever, right? And so curious. So curiosity is important, yeah. you think, to be a good futurist? Yeah, curiosity and hope. I think that they're, they're two of yeah. the, the, the big things. Curiosity, a nonstop passion for learning, and that's what I've always had in my life. But the hope that what you're going to do is going to have a bearing on the world and how the world could possibly change. I just had a a, a rather interesting discussion with um, my partner this morning about hope and futures and how difficult the world's going to be to live in and over the next few decades you know how hope can cut through this but you know how we need to motivate people to make a change in in, in the world and and really you know politicians aren't futurists because they run you know through election cycles and government cycles yeah so Very where are the term futures yeah yeah, yeah near-term future you know, short-term thinking is... It's is, a problem for humanity, you know? That, yeah. I mean, look, climate change is short-term thinking, right? It's yeah. produced because we thought, we'll just keep keep the profits rolling in for a little bit longer, we'll fix it later. Well, here's here's the rub, right? So in the, in the 1950s, the discipline of foresight, strategic foresight sort of popped up. And where did it pop up? Royal Dutch Shell, because they, they were looking at the futures of, of energy. And you know what? Like, they did a really good job of looking at scenarios, and they kind of got it right that the world was going to be in a pretty difficult spot. But what did Royal Dutch Shell do? They just like, you know, shut the door on, on the box and put it in the big warehouse, you know, like the Indiana Jones moment. Let's just forget that 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 that, that Pandora's box of, of optimistic, hopeful, scenario-based thinking that could actually drive a better world um, doesn't exist because uh, what we found out is counter to how we're going to make a gazillion dollars, right? Right, right. So what about futurist.com? Mm. 
what are your plans? Is there anything upcoming for futures.com? Are you going to be expanding? And what is it about? What does the platform represent? Yeah, well, how does it come about too? So um, we talked about Glenn Heemstra earlier, and um, I, I sort of got to know Glenn through <laughs> through Twitter. Um, and 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 a few years ago, one of his someone was trying to you know sell futurist.com. Uh and um, I was approached and I looked at it and I was like, well, thank you very much. But I don't think that, you know, I would give you what you want for it. <laughs> anyway, over the years, that person disappeared. Me and Glenn became actually very good friends. And pre-pandemic, you know, we're going to cut a deal. We're going to work out. Because Glenn was retiring. And I was only going to take over Futurist.com, which he registered, I think, in 1993. He right? did. Yeah. Um, so OG, right? Um, Super OG. It's it's got all of the SEO juice that you need uh, being found on the internet um, as a futurist, right? But like, just in terms of the amount of work that Glenn has done over the years, and he should be someone on your podcast as well. Uh, the amount of work that he's done over the years with so many incredible people, like government levels and Olympics, and and uh, and people like Boeing, he's based in in Seattle. You know, he, he was running workshops, he took everything over. I did a couple of interviews with him. And it's fascinating what his story is, he sort of fell into the world in the late 60s. I mean, there's not many people like Glenn around in the world. And whilst he sort of retired a little bit more these days, I was always going to have him involved in futurist.com. He's still there as the founder. Um, so I've got this think tank, and it's got a number of other people. I brought people like Polly Allen on who's doing really great work in, in AI. And you've got also got Anne Boyson that's literally building AI systems for the largest tech tech companies in the world. People like Richard Yonk, um, Jermaine Cascow, Cascow just like came on as well. You know, he talks about Banny and the brittle, anxious world that we live in. You know, it's it's a diversity of thought. And then when clients come to me, I'm not. I used to do everything on my own. Right. <laughs> it's difficult, but you end up with a myopic view. So when you start to do uh, engagement, so I advised a very large government agency early this year. You know, there's me, there's my uh, my futurist analyst friend, uh, Tiffany Hamilton. There was Glenn Heemstra. And we wrote uh, a white paper on the future of banking uh, and uh, and advised, you know, very senior government folks on, on a number of different um, things that were coming. And it was incredibly important to have those voices. So the future of futurist.com is more of that people have said you should you should build it out into a massive consultancy you should think about this you should think a media company i think once you grow beyond the focus that you have um, everything is diluted and you end up being slightly less useful in the world so this is a, a small group of people that can really make really big impacts on the thinking of the people that shape our world and i'm i'm happy to roll with that from now until the end of time awesome well there yeah. is something that we like to do just before the break so everyone can sort of get familiar with uh, our guests and we call it a lightning round the quick yeah. fire round it's just a couple of quick questions um and uh here we go this is the lightning round what was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to on TV or via books? I guess you've already answered that. Yeah, I kind of showed you the Osborne Book of the Future. Also, there's a program in the UK called Tomorrow's World, and you can find this on YouTube. And literally, I think the BBC has 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 done an admirable job of, uh, of, of taking a lot of British kids towards a future horizon. Awesome. What technology, if any, do you think has most changed humanity? 
so uh, I talk about I, I talk about the the technologies that augment human capability all the way from Vannevar Bush's idea of the Memex through to Douglas Engelbart and the, the, you know, the mother of all demos to the Xerox Alto and then Steve Jobs walking in and going, "Can I give you some money? I want to use that uh, that graphical user interface and the mouse." You know. Mm. I, I think it has to be personal computing. It absolutely has to be. And I think that today personal computing includes those wearable devices. Uh, I think, you know, we're stepping into the realm of, you know, head-worn, you know, reality-based devices, spatial computing. But it all comes back to Vannevar Bush, Silicon, Douglas Engelbart. Yeah. I think Douglas Engelbart is the most under-recognized yeah, uh, sort of inventor in the world of uh, in our modern world because he he did everything from like networking on ARPANET, the progenitor of uh, of the internet, building microwave uh, based modem so he could run his demonstration in the Civic Center in San Francisco cool. with all of the computing thirty miles down the road in in Stanford to like you know video conferencing, hyper to everything. And honestly, when when I'm in there in in an audience and I say, hey. Um, does who knows who Douglas Engelbart is? I've yet to find anyone in the crowd to put their hand up. And these are people that are like, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old, right? Um, we're asleep at the wheel and we don't recognize the people that have come before us. But then, you know, my kid is my even kid. Carl Sagan, you know, I mean, well, yeah. so much he that he contributed, but is know. my kid gonna even care who Steve Jobs is? Probably yeah. not. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's crazy. All right, last one. What science fiction story is most representative of the future that you hope for? Is there one? This is really interesting. So um, if if you were to say what was your favorite science fiction book, it would be The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Very most... Good. <laughs> most <laughs> mostly course. because, you know, everyone expects me to say something more serious. But like, the, the humor, the wit, the, the context, the, you know, the idea that we're such a small, um, small part of a, of a, a much bigger universe is really important, man. What other science fiction? I mean, the, the films that I watch over and over again, um, Gattaca, Blade Runner. Nice. Yeah. Gattaca, Blade Runner, Arrival. We can get into UFOs if you want. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, um, thing, yeah, you know, obviously, minority report, yeah, uh, yeah, and things like interstellar as well. You know, just th th these things that take us to a future horizon and say, it's so you think that thing it's more important for us to be just imagining these possible futures than the necessarily one because once you start thinking yeah. about it, then yeah, yeah. okay, and and but some, some really difficult watching as well, children of men, yeah. No one yeah. in the world can have kids anymore. Science gone All right, wrong. Well, let's, let's have a quick break. You're listening to The Futurists. I'm your host, Brett King, with uh, Miss Metaverse in the co-host seat. We're speaking to Nick Badminton from Futurist.com. We'll be right back after this break. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show.
Welcome back to The Futurists. Today we're joined with Nick Badminton and we, in the first half, we're talking about the background of futures thinking, where Nick got started, and what inspires people to become a futurist. Now, let's get into the good stuff. We are going full futurist. Let's do it. All right. So, Nick, what is your vision of the future? You know, personally, personal opinion. Is it dystopian or are we going to go on the utopian route or is it somewhere in between? So I kind of made made a name for myself for running a night called Dark Futures, which sort of embraced sort of the you know hidden system dystopic futures were something we had to embrace. Uh, you know, I wrote my book, Facing Our Futures, that also did that. But the book that I wrote was about positive futures. Um and dystopian futures and having that 360 degree view so you could work out you know where where the risks and the challenges were and where the positive trajectories forward were right so positive principles that i have are like humanity before technology plurality inclusion and equity scientific fact and creativity and then the on the dystopian side it it's all about the world that we live in today tech first before humanity everything about growth and profit right, right. Um, for the few, selective information and creativity, the throttling of our creativity right. in a way that's caused a, a poverty of imagination. But I mean, where I'm landing now, I, my, my whole platform of, for for talking and and going out in the world is around hope, and how hope is an energy to drive us through some of the most difficult points in time. And what's beautiful about hope is that as futurists, we we channel hope to be able to really look beyond the structural challenges of our world as we sort of hit our limits in growth, we collapse, we choose to transform or whatever. But what's really useful is the hope that you can build in an organization or an individual actually drives the change today as well. So hope is this like non-linear non-time constrained sort of energy in the world. So I sort of and I think that's really important. And sure, optimism is a great word. But optimism just just feels like you know a sticker on the suitcase of life in a way, rather than hope being the uh, the things that we carry around in that suitcase that are actually utilitarian for us to apply on a daily basis. Yeah, for sure. So also your dark features. Tell us more about that because it's funny. I, I actually you know I've been writing a book that has a very similar title. So yeah. it's good to know we're on the same wavelength of, of thinking, although mine's a little bit more focused on cyberpunk. <laughs> sure, sure. But, but uh, you know, I think this raises a good point. You know, you you talk about the dystopian angle. Yeah. You know, and I'm assuming, you know, Dark Futures is part of that. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, is that primarily because, um, you know, the, the two paths that are in the future for us one is that we really don't change our philosophy of life. And so the right. problems that we have today get amplified. Like, for example, artificial intelligence, if it's successful, concentrates wealth and creates greater inequality, you know, as an example. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right? Versus, you know, when you talk about these utopian or positive futures, the hope that you have, mm. you're part of that, isn't that part of that hope that we, we finally learn you know, right. that, uh, you know, that there are values that are more important than the markets and money, for example, you know. Mm-hmm. Culture and memory are potent, right? Um, the world has been created by war and taxes for thousands of years. <laughs> so, like, we, are, you know, how do we fundamentally change our culture 
the culture of humanity, which started off with tribes and then grew to towns and cities, you know, 13, 14,000 years ago, to industrial systems, to whatever, um, where you've still got this un, un, undergrowth of, of that cultural and human uh human existence that that is really difficult to shift you know and you know people needing to eat and keep the lights on is just as important as you know working out where we can breathe uh, clean air right so it, it it's all of these things in the foundation that we have to really get there how, how do we disrupt this is probably the most difficult thing that we can do I mean, our generation is just part of part of a solution um, across like the next hundred generations, right? And I kind of hope that in sort of three, four thousand years, the world's going to be in a slightly better place, you know. But it's tricky to see it today, and that's why they people need us. Yeah. What is the farthest out timeline that you've envisioned? You know, is it three, four thousand years, or even you know longer, like you know ten thousand years? Or yeah, let take take us on that journey. You know, what do you think yeah. humanity is going to be like in twenty fifty, twenty one hundred, and then yeah, so it's kind of interesting, right? I mean. Uh, myself and Bronwyn Williams, who's down in South Africa at Flux Trends, who should also chat on the podcast. Absolutely fantastic individual. Or have you? I'm not sure if you have chatted to her. Absolutely fantastic individual. Me and her, we put together the idea of the thousand year project. It's like, what does the world look like in a thousand years? So I'm sat here in my studio in Toronto. I guarantee you that this will not be here in a thousand years. Like nothing that we see today will be here in any way, shape, or form that it's in in, in, in a thousand years. And I don't think looking at a thousand years is useful for a business. I think it's useful from us looking at a big picture as, as in people in the futures world, really, really recognizing that a lot is going to happen in that time. Last year, I did a, a presentation in California, down in LA, uh, to a group of farmers from the from the Midwest in the US, and I brought in this this one study, and this one study was imagining. Um, the world at like this 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 um global warming limit in the year 2500 cool it makes no impact on the audience at all to start talking about you know yeah in india people in india are literally wearing respirators there's no amazon and in in the uh, us midwest that you're you're growing uh pineapples harvested by by drones you know yeah. i mean because the temperature there's no more florida talking about these things and um but you know i think that these are behind doors the the futures conversations like we have here rather than being at the boardroom table i mean i i generally start off at 2035 and i look out but i do really ask people to look at, at 2050 as a minimum to really understand their place in the world it's far enough away so that they don't realize that the world's going to... kids are still going to have to deal with it. Well, we exactly, could still Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so so the, the generations, our families are still going to be there. But what we do today, I mean, 2023, you know, in 27 years, everything's going to change. And sure, the world might look similar in many ways, be a bit warmer, I guess. And a bit weirder weather, um, yeah. but all of all of the systems underneath change, right? And that's the important thing here, and that's why it's so difficult to change everything because these structural things. I mean, Brett, you you do a lot of work in banking. There's like decades old solutions in traditional banks, and it's like, 
Okay, uh, where's yeah, that I mean, date? Most I, of the major banks are running on 1960s uh, mainframe right, exactly. Yeah. I, I used to build very large analytical uh, based infrastructure, and I, I worked at a bank in the UK, and it's like, okay, uh, okay, I see you've got this data feed. That's going to be really important. Um, it's got these variables and, and this history. It's like, you know, how do we get that feed? Well, luckily, Jim hasn't retired yet. Let's go and see Jim, and you walk off. And true story. You find this guy that's the only guy that knows how to deal with this one mainframe-based <laughs> system and how to program it and how to get data out of it. It's a, it's a chink in the armor of the overall, you know, running of the bank, and they're trying to work out how to fix it. It's like if you look at airline, you know, booking systems for airlines like Sabre and all these decades oh, old. It's crazy. Swift is what 48, 49 years old. Yeah. I mean, you know, all of these things are there and it's incredibly tricky. And why haven't they been fixed? Because they're ingrained. It's like ripping the nervous system out of a human and saying, we're just going to, you know, upgrade that and replace that. It's it's almost impossible to do it. In fact, you you wouldn't really do that with a human. Well, it it happens over a long, long periods of time. That's right. um, you know, we've seen the internet come in and disrupt various businesses that are too traditional in terms of their approach and so forth. I'm sure that'll continue to happen with AI as we have large-scale automation yeah. coming into place, you know. But in, in on that, um, where do you stand on the AI front in terms of, obviously, you're, you know, you're fairly optimistic. Yeah. But, um, you know, there, there is a potential for significant disruption of employment and so forth. You know, uh, I know when Rob and I are on the show often, Rob is, you know, of the, you know, the the optimistic catal- ca- capitalist viewpoint that, well, we've al- always created new jobs that have right. you know, been disrupted by tech like this. I'm I'm less certain because, you know, we've never had a technology that can disrupt every industry simultaneously, right. you know, as we have with AI. But where do you sit on that spectrum in terms of the effect of AI and what's it going to be like in 2035, say? I'm I'm giving a keynote tomorrow, and it's about it, it, I've I've gone down the rabbit hole of AI, and I'm trying to work this out. I mean, the the, the bottom line is, um, is anyone going to be flipping burgers in 2025 in a McDonald's? No, I doubt it. Right? Is anyone going to be driving a taxi? I doubt that as well. You know, um, but there, 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 there's I think that there's a finite uh, amount of occupations that are algorithmic, you know, do step one, do step two, do step three, or whatever, even up to complex tasks like driving through cities or whatever, they will ultimately be replaced by this technology. But we got to remember that AI doesn't make anyone redundant. You know, the, the, the executives and the management and the people that are shaping companies uh, or changing their companies make people redundant. <laughs> so we got to work out the opportunity of liberating people from the algorithmic work and what they can bring from a from a humanity perspective to the workplace and what that will do to this new world where we've got an opportunity to you know optimize it to the nth degree and use technologies in fantastic ways i'm not talking about ubi and we're not going to work ever or anything like that but it's like what what are we going to do you know i'll I'll be honest like things like construction yeah, well, but <laughs> construction sites, you know, is it going to be like, you know, 200 drones complete a building in five days? No, of course it's not. It's Everything's still going to be deeply human, except for the flipping burgers and driving taxis. But at the same time, you know, someone's, you know, I say this to, to people. We'll be on the path to those drones that can construct buildings, right? 
I, I, I chatted to uh, a lot of companies in the industrial cleaning space a couple of weeks ago, and I spoke about robotics. And it's like, okay, like, you know, that robot is cleaning that, that bathroom. Who's cleaning the robot? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, and who's, who's, who's controlling this and, and who's training it and who's refilling it and who's chatting to the people that are so like, now we're saving you know, the robots. Hiring. It all, it all shifts. It all shifts exactly. and changes. It all shifts and changes, right? Uh, we've kind of got this sort of like this limited blinkered vision of, of of possibility, which is like new tech. New tech replaces this. Uh, that's not good. Let's you know create a bill. <laughs> Let's create a bill or have some regulations and whatever. And it's like, what about creating a platform of opportunity to use that technology to be even more than we are? I mean, AI probably the biggest thing that the artificially intelligent systems machine learning based systems will be healthcare and and drug discovery and then quantum computing as well healthcare These is things. such a huge issue man you know we did the estimates mm-hmm. for this in techno socialism right. in the rise of techno socialism and we looked at we we think you could get a 70% decrease in yeah. you know gdp level of investment in healthcare with ai over the next two to three generations right i mean right. two to three uh, uh decades um you know like just incredible progress, not to mention longevity and eliminating diseases from the genome with gene therapy. It, it is, there's so many opportunities in healthcare. Yeah. We live in a world of an infinite onion though, right? So we, we peel off the layers and we keep finding more layers and that we never hit the center. But what happens when you start peeling off the layers, you learn more things that enable more industries to be created so you can learn more things. It's like the idea, I, I saw this great um, Big Think uh, video and it was a NASA scientist like destroying the idea of the singularity as per you know Ray Kurzweil. Because as we learn more and we unpeel, like, you know, unravel this world and peel off the layers of the onion. In fact, I think I took the the analogy from him. You just learn more. You know, you need to decode more. You know, you need to understand, but we never stop learning. I mean, in the 12th century, uh, you had Al-Jazari, who was was known as the dreamer. He was a Persian polymath. And he's the the father of modern robotics. And he he wrote a book of 60 ingenious devices that were automata that were run by like wind or water or movement or, you know, gravity. So it's like it. I mean, back then they would say, well, there's not going to be any more bands or any more boats that are going to be piloted by people. It's like, no, it just advances us forward. The trouble with the narrative around AI today is this. There are very few people that hold the keys to the castle of the big systems that are starting to wow the world, like open AI or you know, or Google or, or whoever else. And they're, they're sort of wielding, you know, these these sort of very powerful platforms and saying, everything's going to be great. Just join the party. Just, just you know, log in, like, you know, sign up and log in here and use our platform. Everything's going to be great. And uh, mm-hmm. these things never work out well. There's something really interesting. When Tim Tim uh, Timnit Gebru and all these people started uh, blowing the whistle on uh, large language models and the issues and whatever, it was it was about the challenge, the structural, um, political, ethical challenges that surround these systems. Very much like uh, the Luddites in the Industrial uh, Revolution, they didn't hate technology. I don't think anyone truly hates technology. They just hate how it's being used to undermine humans or humans are being discounted so readily, right? right. So the term the term Luddites, he's a Luddite, means he hates technology. No, no, a Luddite is someone that actually deeply cares about human and worker rights. 
And that's the sort of a narrative that's been lost. And it's the same with AI today. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, let's not discount teachers. Let's not discount um, chefs in 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 high grade restaurants and quick service restaurants. Let's not discount um, the construction worker. Let's not discount the artists. You know, let's let's embrace let, let's embrace technology, but let's embrace those those people a little bit more. Now, get, where is this? Fired where is this? up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, uh, there's a lot of fear right now, particularly about BCI's Neuralink and eventually having to merge uh, our our intelligence with mm. uh, super AI. What are your thoughts about that? How far away are we? You know, is this something that people should be concerned about in the in the coming 10, 20 years? So the challenge is this. With artificial intelligence systems, machine learning, um, things that learn um, from a machine basis, they don't work like a brain. They do not work like a brain. They should never work like a brain. They shouldn't even use language like we use language. They shouldn't even think how we think. We're just sort of almost restricting them in that regards. When we start to think about brain-computer interfaces, I start to think about projects like... Um, you know the the decoding of the the connectome. You know all of the neural connections in a human brain. Right now, um, projects have actually looked. I think it's called the connectome project. Has actually like managed to recreate um, a fruit fly's brain, right? <laughs> Which is so wildly basic. To you can't even start to begin to do that with a human brain. Once you can actually work out physiologically at a point in the future of absolutely every way that our brain works in a biological sense and from a neurochemical sense to, to process information like we do, we're perfect sensory machines in many, many respects, way more by tens of thousands of percent than any computing or hardware um, capabilities out there today. You're going to be just um, given a whole new problem of like, what the hell do you do with it? Now, I'm not saying that, you know, having inserts into the brain or whatever can't help things like Parkinson's, like electrodes, um, stopping the shakes um, or whatever. I think that's all good. Um, this this Muskian, you know, uh, <laughs> utopia that, that's being envisaged of suddenly it's going to solve every disease on the planet. Is, is incredibly dangerous. And I know there's a lot of discussion around, you know, whether it's going to be safe or not. But working out, you know, solving some simple things is going to be really important. The idea that suddenly it's like plug and play, uh, let's go, um, almost like Matrix vibes is, I think it's the wrong path for humanity. I agree. Now, before we close out, I just wanted to ask, what about the future are you most concerned about or most positive about yeah so a, a few years ago i was invited to speak at, um the premier forum in natural resources in british columbia canada and it was at that point i was like look you know i'm a couple of years of of, of doing keynotes and really you know I was, I was a tech wonk i was really you know ai and tech and all that good stuff but it's like you know there's something bigger and more important in natural resources but it's also the, the the nexus between water energy and food and that's what i talk about more than anything else today so um the the resiliency around the systems for for water and and solving water scarcity and salinity is probably the biggest challenge we have in the world because if we don't do that you know 90 plus percent of all electricity generation that relies on water being available and the processing of data as well is going to be affected and then the the food that we grow is going to be affected by like you know o- over a third 
of, of all food that we grow, I'm talking about vegetables, fruits, and legumes, like isn't going to be grown. And in the in in the next sort of 30 years, we're going to need to grow 60% more more food. So I think that there's there's a challenge there. I think there's a huge opportunity there for new technologies to help us like preserve water, grow food and and generate electricity in an abundant way. And and you know, go figure. People are starting to realize it's based partly on technology but partly on the on on what nature's given us in terms of, you know, the the wind, the sun, the run of water, the geothermal we've got, you know. And some people talk about nuclear um, we all need to stop talking about fossil fuels, especially coal. And uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of excited by people that that operate in the revolution of of those water energy food systems. I'm so also it's, it, it's more sustainable living, right? It's more working in concert, you know, working in partnership with the planet and respecting the systems that are fragile, you know, on the planet, right? Yeah, it's sustainability, but it's resilience as well. Resilience, I, right. I work with the United Nations to to create a program called Resilience Frontiers. And it's like pathways from now to our futures, because you know what? We're not going to call the planet. We're not going to fix the problems. We just have to survive what we've got. And we're going to have to have more streamlined and sophisticated solutions to basically realize uh, a world that's livable over the next few years because we've had an abundance of access to natural resources um, and we haven't really cared about what comes next and now we have to care very much about what comes next and hopefully at some point there's a reparation of the world um, that, that we can start working on a little bit more seriously that would be great fair enough all right so what do you um what do you think you know, if you assuming that you can get onto some of this advanced healthcare, yeah, and you live to twenty fifty, what do you think you'll be doing in twenty fifty? Can you imagine if I was alive in twenty fifty? I know, I I might be alive in twenty fifty. It's possible. Twenty seven years, I'll be seventy seven. It's possible. Um, can you imagine? Well, De- Diamandi said, you know, like, well, for every it, after twenty twenty uh, after twenty thirty six. And this is what Aubrey de Grey says, is that for every year we add to the science of longevity, we'll add a year to our lifespan. So mm-hmm. from, from that point forward. I think we need to have another another episode where we talk about longevity and these folks. Yeah. <laughs> we do. I have we opinions. Do. I have opinions. I, yeah. Um, the, the whole longevity thing um, kind of makes me chuckle. So, uh, but hey, <laughs> everyone should rock out. And everyone should believe, you know, do I want to live to be 120? Sounds awful. Uh, <laughs> why, why don't at we? Least, uh, at least I'd like the option. I've got a yeah. contrarian point of view. You've seen Logan's run, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Of you know, the age of 30, you know, we all just leave, leave this mortal crawl, right? <laughs> Matthew. But we do have a problem That's with, pretty grim. Um, you know, population uh, growth, you know, falling off a cliff right now. So I don't know if we'll have that same concerns about that i think there may be you know there may be concerns about how we get back to sustainable um you know levels of population growth that you know keep keep us uh, as a as a species growing yeah it's otherwise tricky. we just might lose interest over time you know you know it's um it's challenging <laughs> yeah even after this conversation we we've covered ground here and it's like we've got a big there's, there's, there's big challenges that we think about. Um, Lots of questions to be answered. And, and if you're not thinking about this all the time, every day, then, you know, we're going to miss stuff and we're going to run headlong into issues that we could have maybe solved. Ergo, 
you know, like like the ethics problem of AI, like yeah. the the problem of climate change, you know, and, and energy utilization, like the problem of access to food and, and food right. security. We know yeah. all of these are going to be problems in the future. Right. And yet we're just, yeah, we'll, well, we'll have to worry about that when we get there. But that, um, that unfortunately means, uh, you know, we, we add a couple of zeros to the number of, you know, millions of people that, that get affected by these problems, right? Yeah. Um, we live what in a, a positive fun- note to finish the show we, on. <laughs> we, live in a, we live in a funky world and, and I love every single part of it. Um, there's a lot of struggle. Um, there's a lot of discussion. We should be smart enough to see our way out of it. Um, but you know, I think younger generations and people like us, we're, we're here to basically be the, uh, the fly in the ointment of, uh, of the people that want to control the planet. And, uh, and we're like the people that want to empower communities to stand up Mm -hmm. and rise up and say, Hey, we need some change. Well, that's positive. I, I do, I do like you believe that, um, you know, it's a very Aristotelian view of the future that right. humanity can thrive, but only if we work together. Exactly. You know, the more we compete against each other, and that's the problem I find with capitalism is that yeah. you know it, it engenders this competition against each other rather than for for each other as a, as a species. So I think that has to change myself. But that's a whole new show that we could talk about. Nick, um, how do people find out more about what you're doing, um, about your book, and, uh, you know, generally get in touch with you or, or follow your musings? Yeah, so you can just type in Nicholas Badminton to the internet and you'll basically find me. I mean, I'm at I'm at futurist.com. I'm at nicholasbadminton.com. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, I like to challenge a lot of thinking and get some discussions going there. That that's a lot of fun. So uh start off in those places, reach out to me. I'm always I'm always into having a a, a conversation about, you know, what comes next and what's really important. Awesome. Katie, any final comments? Oh, we're going to have to do another show 100%. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Yeah, let's see if we can get Glenn on as well. We could do maybe yeah. a show with you Glenn. Glenn's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Great. Well, that's it for The Futurist this week. Um, very, uh, you know, went went quickly. Great guest, Nick uh, Badminton. Um, if you want to check out more of what uh, Nick does, check out futurist.com and also you can check him out on LinkedIn. Um, if you like the show, don't forget to give us a, uh, a review, a rating, you know, uh, tweet us out, share us or, or zed us out, you know, as it is now. <laughs> um, you know, share, share the love uh, because that's how people, more people find out about the show. We're very grateful for your support. Um, we will be back next week but until then we will see you in the future well that's it for the futurists this week if you like the show we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with the people in your community and don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show and you can ping us anytime on instagram and twitter at at futurist podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.